It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 20, the story of Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster and his secret trysts with enslaved women. A crisp night in the winter of 1832 found Isaac Bassett, the Capitol's longtime doorman, keeping watch outside of the Senate chamber's door. Isaac could easily hear the men debating inside. He didn't know what they were arguing about that night, but their debates never really interested him. Soon the patter of footsteps approached from down the hall. Isaac peered into the dark corridor to see a young black boy approaching. Children had no place in the Capitol and black children especially were rarely seen among the halls. Isaac asked the boy what his business was. The boy told him that his name was Bobby, and he was there to see his father. It was a shocking statement. Every U.S. senator was a white man, and most of them were married. There was no way one could have a black child. That would be against the law. But the boy said his full name was Robert Webster. Senator Daniel Webster was his father, and the boy needed to speak to him immediately. Isaac could barely believe what he was hearing. It seemed unfathomable that the senator known as God-like Daniel could be hiding a secret like this. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Throughout the first half of the 19th century, the issue of slavery bitterly divided the United States. While abolitionists, those who wanted the practice to end once and for all, were drawing large crowds in support of their ideals, President Andrew Jackson was filling the White House with slaves from his Tennessee plantation. The United States was in the middle of a Protestant revival dubbed the Second Great Awakening, a movement that had started in 1790 and would peak by 1835. It emphasized moral values that all Americans felt compelled to follow, values like loyalty, kindness, and faith. Likely as a result of this collective guilty conscience, the abolition movement swelled. And a fair share of congressmen campaigned against slavery, including former President John Quincy Adams, though he was nearly censured by the House on account of his activism. 
One of the loudest voices in Congress would prove to be Daniel Webster, a well-respected congressman turned senator representing the state of Massachusetts. And while Webster's later years would bring the odd mixture of both acclaim and turmoil to his career, his roots were rather humble. Daniel Webster was born in 1782 in Salisbury, New Hampshire. While his brothers grew stronger as they tended to the family farm, Daniel battled many illnesses. He was too sickly to work in the fields, so his dad sent him to school instead. Daniel was a sponge for learning, reading, and writing. A local lawyer and reverend let Daniel borrow books from them anytime he liked. The law books in particular piqued Daniel's interest in justice and politics from a young age. He also didn't mind some poetry now and then. Many of Daniel's teachers praised his exceptional memory. On one occasion, Daniel tried to prove himself at his teacher's challenge that whoever learned the most scripture from memory over the weekend would win a prize. Daniel beat his classmates by a mile, reciting 70 verses before the teacher stopped him. In May of 1796, when Daniel was 14 years old, his father enrolled him at Phillips Exeter Academy, a renowned boarding school in New Hampshire. He stayed for just nine months until he began studying more rigorously. At just 15, he enrolled at Dartmouth College. There, from 1797 to 1801, he joined debate and literary fraternities, paving the way for his gift of speaking. And not to call out an old college trope, but Webster developed an infatuation with women. Due to his sickly pale skin, frail frame, and dark features, Daniel's advances, though, were often one-sided. To compensate, Daniel started to dress better than all of his classmates. It was tricky, granted nicer clothes proved to be out of his budget. But Webster levied his personality and his intellect to become well-liked among his peers at school. Who wouldn't want to lend a little here and there to such a nice guy? Webster became a master borrower, which would serve him through his life. He was the most popular student at Dartmouth, and one day, many believed he would be President of the United States. After graduating college, Daniel moved back to Salisbury, New Hampshire, where he learned to practice law. During this time, he married Grace Fletcher, a schoolteacher and clergyman's daughter. Then, in 1813, 31-year-old Daniel saw his opportunity to get into politics. He ran for Congress and won representing New Hampshire for the next four years until 1817. However, there was no denying that a lawyer's salary far outranked that of a congressman. After all, he'd studied for 12 years, and it seemed most prudent at that point to focus his attention on law. He moved back to Boston to work for the Supreme Court. Yet as hard as he tried, Daniel couldn't stay away from Washington politics for too long. He was fascinated by the influence political figures had and their indelible marks on history. He harbored dreams of one day running for president and influencing the nation. So in 1822, he again ran for the House of Representatives and was re-elected as representative for Massachusetts. It was around this time, though, that the congressman's political ideology would start to clash with his more personal ethics. 
As the national debate of abolition ballooned, with each year, Webster was growing more pressed to take a clear stance. And at first, it seemed clear what that position was. As a farm boy, he'd never been wealthy enough to own slaves. His adult life had proved no different. Daniel Webster gave off every indication that he opposed the entire system of slavery. Which was quite a stark facade, given the fact that in the early 1820s, Daniel Webster's first illegitimate child, Robert Webster, was born. According to the reporting by Smithsonian Magazine, the man later identified as Robert Webster, who was simply known as Bob at that time, was born into slavery in Washington, D.C. in 1820. Though the identity of Robert's mother remains unconfirmed to this date, it was said that Senator Webster came to visit mother and child where they lived and worked at Washington, D.C.'s National Hotel. The laws of slavery in 1820 meant that they were the property of John Gadsby, the hotel's owner. Webster's visits to the National Hotel weren't in secret. He allegedly made quite the impression with his impatient temper and booming voice when he dined at the hotel. Still, at that point, no one dared to cross the senator or comment on his activities off Capitol Hill. Indeed, Webster was quickly making a name for himself as the master orator of Washington. His word-bending was arguably his most important calling card as a politician. In 1826, he'd even been unanimously voted to give the eulogy for both former presidents Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. It was eerily coincidental that on the 4th of July of that year, both men passed away in their respective homes. Senator Webster rose to the occasion, delivering a two-and-a-half-hour speech without once looking at his notes. In the eulogy, when describing Adams's and Jefferson's legacies, he said, It is something greater and higher than all eloquence. It is action, noble, sublime, godlike action. Sure, he wasn't the most handsome of congressmen, but Webster's dark, captivating eyes bore into his audience. They demanded respect as he talked. Mourners who heard his funeral speech praised it just as they did his more typical orations. At the end of the eulogy, the crowd erupted with applause. Many people, including President James Madison, praised its emotion and poignancy. No one could forget the image of Webster with tears in his eyes, stomping his foot and delivering those powerful words. From that point on, Webster was known as Godlike Daniel. Crowds traveled from across the country to hear him speak. While many men of the time were great speakers, Webster's lectures transfixed even the unbelievers. He knew how to speak to universal topics and manipulate language to make his addresses catchy and palatable. His speeches were studied for decades and are relevant even today. In light of his upward rise, in 1827, Massachusetts elected Webster not back to the House, but this time to the Senate. And despite his initial hesitance, godlike Daniel found that he was shaping up to be the exact portrait of what a senator should be. He had the poise, the voice, and the respect of all Washington. 
For this reason, he thought the White House would one day be his, and he would go down in history as the most eloquent president to ever take office. But the future of Senator Webster's career would involve more mudslinging and petty quarreling than executive power. Coming up, Daniel Webster's private life becomes potent ammunition against him in Washington. Now, back to the story. In the 1830s and 40s, Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster had captivated the nation with his speeches. People called him Godlike Daniel and believed one day they could expect a presidential bid from him. But underneath Daniel's saint-like facade, an alternate and much more troubled personality was hidden. Friends close enough to witness the senator let his guard down called him Black Dan. Daniel was said to enjoy several drinks a night. He was an alcoholic with a problem of gambling his money away. If he had any, that is. And that troubling college habit of calling on the wallets of friends had resurfaced. Even as a senator, Webster was known to borrow large sums of money with no intent to repay them. Though he wouldn't admit it, he couldn't save money for the life of him. However, Webster knew he need not beg when he could borrow. He used his charming personality and influence in Washington to surround himself with rich friends. They always provided him with whatever he needed. But money wasn't the only thing he was missing. In 1828, his first wife, Grace, died of cancer. It left Webster racked with grief, only for his brother to also die the following year. By May of 1829, 47-year-old Webster was deeply depressed. He turned to the company of women to soothe his pain. The grieving senator was in desperate need of companionship. Thankfully, after his wife's death, he received a gift from his old friend, a painter named Sarah Goodridge. It was a self-portrait of her own breasts titled Beauty Revealed. Webster and Goodridge had known each other for nearly a decade, but during this time period, their friendship became something more. Even after Webster married his second wife, Catherine Leroy, that December, it was widely rumored that he and Goodridge were still seeing each other. Remember, Webster didn't just have one affair. He was rumored to have slept with many other women of various races, both enslaved and free. Allegedly, there were as many as eight of his mixed-race children roaming around Washington, D.C., and possibly more in Boston. After all, the Capitol's doorman Isaac would attest to that night that Robert Webster dashed up to the Senate chamber doors in 1832, fatefully insisting that he was there to see his father. And there was more to come. Allegedly in the 1840s, Webster routinely dined with William Cranch, the chief judge of the federal court in Washington. At Cranch's residence, Webster met Monica McCarty, Cranch's young slave. Webster marveled at McCarty's cooking. He became instantly infatuated with her. When Cranch offered to sell McCarty to the senator, Webster recoiled at the thought of owning another human. Instead, he purchased McCarty's freedom for $600. The woman worked at Webster's D.C. residence and traveled with him to his farm in rural Massachusetts whenever he visited. 
Cranch was under the impression that McCarty would pay Webster back, but the senator never accepted a cent from the young woman. Webster even was said to have started a fund in her name, setting aside whatever money he could beg, borrow, or convince others into lending him for her. It wasn't long before people caught on that Webster had a particularly odd and close relationship with his cook. Still, discussions of Webster's private life wouldn't reach the public for another few years. Before 1850, there wasn't anything dire, not concrete, to propel Webster's inappropriate relationships into the spotlight. In fact, Webster was hardly the only man in Washington with illegitimate children. President Thomas Jefferson, the man who Webster so passionately eulogized, famously fathered at least six children with his slave Sally Hemings. At the time, all of this information amounted to rumors. There was no concrete proof that Jefferson or any of his fellow politicians had engaged in inappropriate behavior. Over 100 years would pass before DNA evidence gave us the truth. And in the 19th century, talking candidly about the personal lives of politicians was blatantly taboo. The attitude was what these men did at home was personal business. The nation only needed to care about what happened in the capital. However, the Compromise of 1850 was perfectly timed to turn this blind-eye protocol on its head. That year, as a result of the Mexican-American War, several territories, including California, were added to the Union. Officials in California wanted to enter the country as a free state, meaning that slavery would be prohibited. This sparked a fierce national debate. Many citizens in the North and Heartland supported abolition. In comparison, most of those in the South wanted slavery to continue and expand into the new territories. To put a Band-Aid on a bullet hole and delay a possible civil war, the Compromise of 1850 was proposed in the Senate. The document, as championed by Henry Clay, was a combination of concessions. Amongst them was that the California Territory be admitted as a free state, and more broadly, that slavery would become a state issue rather than a national one. Each state would decide independently what its stance would be, a policy known as popular sovereignty. And while Daniel Webster had a long history of criticizing slavery in broad terms, he'd even called it a great moral, social, and political evil, he was about to divert to a rather shocking position in regard to Clay's bill. To everyone's surprise, Webster publicly supported the compromise, which indirectly endorsed the continuation of slavery. While Webster didn't want the practice to expand into the new territories, he had no trouble standing before the Senate, insisting on rather shocking concessions. As he stated, the union of all the states was the single most important thing of all. For that reason, it was critical that the compromise pass. The response to his speech was chaotic. Avid abolitionists, until then supporters of Webster, suddenly turned their backs on him. They felt he was a traitor and had betrayed the movement that had supported his rise to Washington. Meanwhile, his long-standing opponents were intrigued, wondering what had caused his sudden change of heart. 
With criticism coming at him from both sides, the unspoken, don't ask, don't tell policy that governed Washington circles was broken. It set alight whisperings that there might be more to godlike Daniel's personal life than anyone thought. And if there was still any possibility he might be the next presidential hopeful in 1852, Webster's morals were an issue of national concern. One such critic was a journalist named Jane Gray Swisshelm. Like many Washington correspondents, she knew that Webster had an established history as an abolitionist, and even for freeing slaves. And she found it very hypocritical and bizarre that he would try to hedge his views now for political gain. Swisshelm had a gut feeling that Webster had a few secrets he hadn't yet disclosed. It would be her mission to find them and expose them for the good of America. As an early feminist trailblazer, Jane Swisshelm was a rare breed. In the 19th century, it was unheard of for a woman to choose a career over family. In fact, Jane's own husband demanded that she obey him and prioritize him over work. In response, Jane left. In 1850, 35-year-old Swisshelm was working for the New York Tribune, a highly respected paper. That April, she became the very first woman admitted to the reporters' gallery of the U.S. House of Representatives. She was quickly tossed into the chaos. On her first day in the gallery, she wrote about an exchange in which one representative drew a pistol on a colleague. A reporter on the incident wrote, Nobody but a regular woman could make a description of such a scene so interesting. That jerking, nervous, half-breathless excitement, which would embarrass the narrative of a man, only adds piquancy and grace to that of a woman. The abolition movement was also overjoyed to have someone like Swisshelm in their ranks. After living briefly in Kentucky with her husband in 1838, she'd witnessed the horrifying realities of slavery. And from there, her disgust with the system grew into an all-out hatred. Whenever the chance arose, she wrote against slavery. And for all Daniel Webster's talent at public speaking, Jane Swisshelm had an equal amount of flair with the written word. It made sense then that Swisshelm and Webster were destined to become perfect opponents. And when she caught wind of Webster's jarring stance on the Compromise of 1850, Jane wasted no time in sharpening her pen. Like many citizens, Swisshelm was disappointed that the bill skirted the issue. Instead of simply abolishing slavery, it would allow it to continue indefinitely and without any possibility of federal action. She saw through Webster's argument that popular sovereignty was a compromise. To her, it was a cop-out. To Swisshelm, slavery was an issue so large and so polarizing that there was no way to patch together compromises. It needed a concrete solution, and Washington's politicians would need to put in the hard work to achieve it. As she began reporting on the compromise, Swisshelm uncovered inklings of Senator Webster's seedy personal life almost immediately. After arduously tracking down rumors of his several mistresses, she learned that one might be a woman of color. Jane wasn't surprised. She agreed with the words of Thomas Jefferson. The best blood of Virginia 
runs in the veins of her slaves. Around this same time, Swisshelm heard the story of Monica McCarty, the former slave who lived in Webster's home. Senator Webster had bought McCarty's freedom and then hired her as a cook. The more damaging information that Swisshelm found, though, was that apparently Webster often bought groceries for Monica and her eight growing children, all of which were mixed race. As they aged, many had drawn the parallel that some of the children looked strikingly like Daniel Webster. Again, rumors like this weren't unheard of in Washington, but Swisshelm was enraged at the hypocrisy Senator Webster was displaying. In her eyes, McCarty's situation was barely any different from slavery. Webster was just refusing to call it such. And she wasn't afraid to speculate even further. Swisshelm declared that if slavery continued, Webster would have access to more women to prey on for his own sexual gain. Jane took the story to the New York Tribune, where she'd been assigned to report on the controversy surrounding the Compromise of 1850. Naturally, most national newspapers felt a duty to comment on the chaos oozing out of Washington. And Swisshelm's article on Webster was definitely controversial, although it was more of a personal takedown than a piece of political commentary. Before publishing, Swisshelm brought the article to several Free Soil Party members, an abolitionist group, for their stamp of approval. In reply, one of the party's founding members, Congressman George W. Julian, confirmed the rumors about Webster and his illegitimate children. But he also urged Swisshelm to not publish the article. He said that although the story was true, the article would do more than ruin Webster, it would tarnish Swisshelm's career as well. Webster was well-liked across the nation. The public would undoubtedly stay loyal to the senator, no matter what was being said about him in the papers. Swisshelm didn't listen. She never reasoned with her enemies. She went straight for the jugular without a second thought. In reply, Jane told Congressman Julian, I will publish it and let God take care of the consequences. Coming up, Jane Swisshelm runs her story. Now back to the story. In April of 1850, following Senator Daniel Webster's shocking speech endorsing the Compromise of 1850, Journalist Jane Swisshelm ran her piece in the New York Tribune. The article was damning. It accused Webster of fathering eight mixed-race children with a former slave that he employed in his home. The news spread like wildfire. As soon as the Tribune story was out in the world, it was repeated in local papers and national syndicates. Soon, the whole country had caught word that godlike Daniel had some undisclosed information. Talking about politicians' personal lives was something journalists never did in this era. So understandably, the notion that a senator, who at the time was calling to pass a very controversial piece of legislation, was also unfaithful to his wife, was shocking. And granted, that was only the first portion of Swiss Holmes' scathing expose. She insinuated in her article that Webster might have sexually abused enslaved women and conceived children with them as a result. 
This kind of commentary was unlike anything the country had ever seen. While it's unknown just how many of Webster's colleagues considered Swisshelm's piece to be legitimate, there was no denying that it left a lingering sour taste around Congress. Some colleagues and fans stopped referring to Webster as godlike Daniel. It would seem then that Jane Swisshelm should have felt the air of victory. Some of Webster's most staunch opponents praised her. After the article's release, one politician shook hands with the journalist at a party, saying, I want to take the hand that killed Daniel Webster. But the brief fame that came to Swisshelm after her article ran soon faded. As George Julian had predicted, to the general public, her reputation was tarnished. In fact, the privileges that Swisshelm had long fought for as a female journalist were about to crumble. Swisshelm's expose about Senator Webster ultimately cost her the position in the Congressional Press Gallery. Her anti-slavery credentials also came under fire. Much as she had dug up on the details of Webster's personal life, someone found evidence that she had once voiced aggressively racist views against Native Americans. And more, many women's rights activists of the time thought Swisshelm's inability to control her tongue and her reputation was an embarrassment to the movement. To them, she had failed by abusing her platform to air scurrilous rumors, destroying her own promising career in the process. As a result, Jane Swisshelm went from respected abolitionist and proponent of women's rights to an enemy of conservatives and civil rights activists. By exposing Webster, she opened herself up to exposure. All bets were off now, and she had to be prepared to stand up to the same scrutiny she'd placed the senator under. In reality, if Swisshelm's ultimate goals were to bring down Senator Webster and indirectly block the passage of the Compromise of 1850, neither was successful. In spite of her reporting and muckraking, Daniel Webster would soon rise back to political prominence. An odd turn of events was waiting in the wings, which would bring about two big changes. In July of 1850, the untimely death of President Zachary Taylor meant he was replaced by his vice president, Millard Fillmore, who was a supporter of the 1850 Compromise. Tasked with steering the nation as the debate over the bill continued, Fillmore was now poised to take decisive action. He started by making one very important appointment. That July, Daniel Webster was appointed to serve as Fillmore's new Secretary of State. Rather than keep former President Zachary Taylor's cabinet choices, Fillmore wanted to select the men advising him. He trusted Webster's long track record in Congress and believed he could be useful in steering foreign policy. Apparently, all the stir over Webster's personal life was of little importance to his new boss. Webster would be sworn in as Secretary of State that summer and hold the office until October of 1852. However, despite remaining gainfully employed, Webster's other vices and pitfalls would best him, most notably his drinking. On one occasion after his scandal when the New York and Erie Railroad was completed in 1851, Webster traveled with the Fillmore cabinet to celebrate. 
The most memorable portion of the trip wasn't the innovative new railway, but rather the portrait of a very drunk Daniel Webster. The secretary allegedly took to one section of the train to slug down expensive rum. He only stood every so often to deliver elaborate and verbose speeches. It came as no surprise then when the 70-year-old Daniel Webster died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1852. Monica McCarty and Daniel's wife, Catherine, were both at his Marshfield estate on the day he died. His last words were, I still live. There would be some truth to those words. As the decades went on, it came to light that Jane Swisshelm's expose had fewer facts to back up her reporting than she initially claimed. As a result, many people discredited her statements. Many Americans were so enamored by Webster and the legacy he left behind that they simply ignored this portion of his history as a slanderous blip. However, it's hard to deny that Webster had at least one son out of wedlock when there was living proof. Robert Webster, the boy born into slavery in 1820, who later came to the Capitol asking for his father, went on to serve in the Civil War on the Confederacy's side, obviously against his wishes. Though Robert's life as a slave forced him to take on various last names in his adulthood, once Senator Webster finally died, Robert publicly confirmed he was his son. Though there has been speculation that Robert was also the son of Monica McCarty, the timeline doesn't quite fit. He seems to be the child of one of Webster's many other affairs. And though other politicians, such as South Carolina Representative James Henry Hammond, have also recounted the story of Robert running to the State House that night in 1832 to speak with his father, Daniel Webster never publicly claimed the child as his son. So those who wanted to worship the senator brushed the stories off as just that. Stories. As the years went on, Webster's legacy was increasingly polarized. Many prominent figures still respected him. Abraham Lincoln himself quoted what he thought were Webster's best phrases in speeches throughout his own career. Lincoln and his wife, ironically, would later become close friends with Jane Swisshelm. On the other hand, some politicians never forgot Webster's alleged lack of morality. While they respected him as a man who brought great change to a young nation, they were careful to stop short of praising him. Many referred to the late senator simply as the best angel the devil could buy. In his memoir, while discussing the senator, John Quincy Adams wrote, the gigantic intellect, the envious temper, the ravenous ambition, and the rotten heart of Daniel Webster. A short story written in 1936 by Stephen Vincent Benet titled The Devil and Daniel Webster summarized just as much. It depicted Webster debating on whether or not he should sell his soul to the devil in order to reach the presidency. Statues and monuments stand in his honor, including Mount Webster in New Hampshire and a likeness in the National Statuary Hall collection in the U.S. Capitol. He remains a textbook example of a great American orator. 
However, while neither Daniel Webster nor Jane Swisshelm are blameless parties in this tale, it serves to remember that Webster was the one under oath, holding elected office. He was not the first politician to abuse his power for his own sexual gain, and he certainly would not be the last. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 19, the glitzy tale of 1988 presidential hopeful Gary Hart and one fateful campaign fundraiser aboard a Miami yacht. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Emily Shear, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>